Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor David Eldridge. Y'all shall turn to 1 Peter 3. One reminder, one of the things that we said that we wanted to focus on this year uh, was reading through the Bible. As a church, we said we want to read through the whole Bible in a year. We're about a third of the way through the year, a little bit over that. And you may be thinking, I'm not a third of the way through the Bible. And that's okay. What I want to do is just challenge, encourage, remind you, fell off the horse, get back on it. You don't have to, you, you can start wherever you want. You don't have to go back to where you were. Maybe that's not the best thing because that's where you quit. You can pick up today, April 16th. Just pick up. The point is for us to be consistently in, in the Word, not just so that we're learning things, but so that's forming and shaping us. One author of that book, and so reading all of it helps us understand the, the parts of it. We're going to look at a passage today that's, it's, honestly, it's a little bit weird, and having some context through the, with the Bible as a whole helps shed some light on some of the tricky parts that can sometimes catch us up. So uh, I think there was a QR code behind me. You can click on that. Those are some plans that we're using as a church, but there's a, a ton of them out there. You find whatever works for you. Just want to encourage you, keep, keep reading. Don't get discouraged. Just keep, keep going. And it, it is making a difference. You may feel like that nothing is, uh, nothing's happening. I might as well be reading a, a dictionary or something. It's, it's forming you and shaping you, and the Lord is, is working it into you. Just be faithful with that. All right, 1 Peter 3. So here's a really long recap. It seems like a long time since we've been in 1 Peter. We did Easter and Palm Sunday, and then I missed a week. So big recap. Peter's writing to some Gentile churches in what's now Turkey, and these churches are new, young, small so I, in my mind, I don't know if this is right, in my mind, we're talking about several dozen people make up these congregations. They're just, and there's, there's no Christian history where they are. They're first generation Christians, the culture that they're in, there's not a church on every corner, there's one in one guy's living room, that's it. And that's difficult. And the, the churches are experienced some level of persecution, maybe not every day, but there's persecution and Peter's writing to encourage them and say, here's how you live in that kind of an environment, which feels very different from our environment. But there are similarities. And he gives them uh, a name tag, a label to wear. And he says, you guys are elect exiles. To be elect is to be chosen, picked, selected. It speaks to God's special care and concern for his people. Peter spends most of his time talking about being exiles, strangers, foreigners in a land that's not your home. And that's where we've been for the, kind of this last chunk of time. What does it look like for us to live as exiles? And that is us. That's, that is where we live as well. Even in the Bible Belt, this world is not our home. In a lot of ways, it's kind of it's the, the term people are using is post-Christian. That's where we live. In a society that in many ways has tried Christianity and is rejecting it. And so what does it look like for us to live as elect exiles? The, the headline, the bumper sticker, abstain from sinful desires. So those impulses that we have that are rooted in our fallen nature and our flesh, refrain from those. 
live such good lives among your neighbors. So a good life is a holy life. It's a life of loving God and loving people. It's, it's imitating Jesus. Those are all different ways of saying a good life. So abstain from sinful desires. Live such a good life among your neighbors that they'll see. And that word for see means to observe over a long period of time. So that they're going to see you year in and year out. You're not going anywhere. These are your neighbors. They're going to see the way you live. And some of them, not all of them, some of them will turn to God. Abstain from evil desires, live a good life among your neighbors so that some of them will see your life. They'll see the fruit of following Jesus and they will turn towards God themselves. And then Peter gets into some nitty gritty relationships where there's a power imbalance. And he's talking to the people who are on the short end of that stick, which is probably most of the people in this congregation. And he says, here's how you live as an exile, as a follower of Jesus, when, when you're in one of these authority relationships and the regardless of the character of the person who's in authority. And he says to his churches as a whole, the, the government is persecuting you and you submit to them. To submit is to yield voluntarily. And you do that not because of the character of the authority, but because of your deep reverence, your fear, your deep respect for God. That submission is not absolute. There are limitations. If to obey a human authority would cause you to disobey Jesus, then you disobey the human authority and you pay the consequences. So that's what he says to the churches in regard to the government. That's what he says in slaves in regard to their masters. It's what he says to believing wives who have unbelieving husbands. Even if they're treating you unfairly, even if they're treating you unjustly, submit, voluntarily yield out of your deep respect for God, not them, within the context of obedience to Jesus. And then uh, Jeremy, a couple of weeks ago, he, he began to look at... as. Peter's kind of landing the plane on what it is to live as exiles. He recognizes that this isn't necessarily easy. You guys are struggling. You're suffering. And he gives them some things to think about. He says, I want you to cultivate these five attitudes in your heart. The definitions are behind me. We won't go through all of those. I want you to be like-minded. Stick together. I want you to be sympathetic. I want you to love one another. That's a word for loving brothers and sisters in the Faith. I want you to be compassionate. I want you to be humble. If you suffer for doing good, if it's God's will, that's better than suffering for doing evil. That's how he ends. He's trying to encourage them. You guys are suffering. If it's God's will, it's better for you to suffer for doing good than, to, than for doing evil. And we're going to look at the last few verses of chapter 3 today that slide right out of that statement. It's better for you if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So starting in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Jesus was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being alive, Jesus went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, in the ark, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. Baptism saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into, the, into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So again, the, the, the first verse, pretty clear. The rest of it's a little bit muddy. So first thing Peter is saying, he's trying to encourage these guys, is he's saying, listen, you're suffering for doing good. You're in good company. Jesus suffered as well for doing good. 
He is your prime example. He's your savior king. He's the one in whose footsteps you're walking. He suffered for doing good, and so you'd be encouraged if you were doing that as well. Jesus' suffering is different from ours, but he suffered for doing good. Lots of ways of understanding Good Friday. One of the ways is to see it as a, a parallel or even a fulfillment of the Old Testament sin offering. There's several kinds of offerings in the Old Testament that were given for, on various different occasions. One of them is a sin offering, and there's multiple kinds of sin offerings. One that I think is helpful for us in understanding the cross, understanding Good Friday. Uh, you see it in Leviticus 4. If you sin unintentionally, so you break the law, you didn't do it on purpose, it's brought to your attention, maybe from somebody else, maybe God convicts you, what do you do? You take a year-old lamb or a year-old goat that doesn't have a, def a defect, you bring that to the priest, you put your hands on its head, and that symbolizes you transferring your guilt for that sin to this animal. Then you slaughter that animal, and then the priest takes some blood from that animal, puts it on the altar, and he pours the rest out. He cuts the fat off of certain organs of the animal and burns them as an, burn offering, to, as an offering to the Lord. And you walk away forgiven and restored to relationship. The technical word for that is atonement. You made atonement for your sins. You've been forgiven and reconciled to God. That's what Jesus did on the cross, and that's what Peter is saying in verse 18. He, was, he died the righteous for the unrighteous. We're the unrighteous. He's the righteous. The technical term for this is substitutionary atonement. It's not a phrase anybody uses, but that's what it is. Jesus was our substitute. Just like that animal did not sin. The person sinned. The animal didn't do anything wrong. But when the hands are laid on the animal's head, it's a transference of guilt from me to it. Jesus is sinless. He's the only one without defect. He's the only one who never sinned. He's the only one whose, whose death is, can be efficacious for the forgiveness of sins. And so he dies in our place, the righteous one, the one without defect for those of us who've sinned, for the ones who have, we have defects. Righteous for the unrighteous. He dies for our sins. His sin takes, excuse me, his death covers our sins. Just like the blood of that lamb or goat provided forgiveness for the sins of the person that brought it. It's a mystery to us how exactly that happens. It's what the Bible teaches. One of the things that's different, in the Old Testament, you had to keep bringing animals because you would keep on sinning. And so at least once a year, you're bringing another animal to the temple. Hebrew says that's not the case with Jesus. His blood, if you wanna see it, is so powerful or so precious that it covers every sin from every person ever committed who's ever living, ever. There's 120 billion people who've lived. So think about the number of sins that is. That's a big number, more than 120 billion. And his death covers all of them. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. He died once and he covered every sin ever committed by every person for all time. And his death is not just for forgiveness of sins. This is a Bible Belt ditch that we can fall into. My sins are forgiven, my sins are forgiven. Jesus died to forgive me of my sins. That's true. Peter says he died to, to bring us to God. The forgiveness of sins is the means to an end. It's step one. It's the starting line, not the finish line. What God has always wanted is to say, I'm gonna be your God and you're gonna be my people. 
Particularly what you see in the New Testament is family language. He's our father and we're his children. The forgiveness of sins removes the obstacle to relationship. Relationship was broken by sin. Jesus' death mends relationship. It makes relationship possible. Read Genesis 1 and 2. That's what God wants. He wants intimate relationship with us. John 17, 3. Not eternal life is the forgiveness of your sins. Eternal life is knowing Jesus and the Father who sent him. That's the goal. He died to bring us near to God. So all of that is plain. We get that. Starting at the end of verse 18, things kind of, there's two major theories. I'm going to give you both. I'm just going to highlight these. Uh, if you have questions about them, you can find somebody else to ask. So here's, here's the two options. I've told you before, you don't have to believe anything that I, like you don't have to agree with me about anything. And you certainly don't have to agree with me about this. So here are the two choices. So Jesus died in the flesh and was made alive in the spirit. And depending on how you understand that, that's the fork in the road. So one idea is Jesus, he died physically. And then on Easter weekend, he died on Friday. So he was in the tomb on Friday night, all day Saturday, Sunday morning. So that's how we get three days. Friday night, that's one day. All day Saturday, two days. Sunday morning, that's three days. So during those three days that he's dead, his spirit has gone to the underworld. We call that Sheol last week. That's the Old Testament word for that. And preaches the gospel to the spirits or the souls of people who died during the flood and during that time of that wicked generation. That's what he's doing. It's like, well, what did Jesus do when he was dead for those three days? He preached. That's a theory. And there's people who love God and honor the Bible, and they've got reasons for why they believe that. During that time, he went and made proclamation. He preached the gospel to people who were dead, people who were in Sheol, that holding tank that we talked about last week, particularly to that generation from Genesis 6. This other theory, other idea, Jesus died in the flesh, so he physically died. He was raised to life in the spirit. The Holy Spirit brings him back to life. He gets a resurrection body. And then after 40 days on the earth, he ascends into heaven. And what he's doing is he is making proclamation of victory, not proclaiming the gospel, but proclaiming victory over the fallen angels from Genesis 6. That's what he's doing. We're in some version of angel jail since then. So they're, they're imprisoned wherever you put angels in prison. That's where they are. And Jesus, when he ascends into heaven, he's saying, I won. That's the, again, you, you pick whichever one. There's good Bible scholars and theologians who support both of them. I'm, I'm, this, I'm in the second camp, and I'll just, I'll tell you why. Uh, but first, we're gonna read Genesis 6 so you can get some background, and it's only gonna make things worse as we try to understand what's going on. But it's important just for you to get this, for you to see this. This is why you need to read through the whole Bible. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever, 
for their mortal, their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. These were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. That's one of the saddest verses in all of the Bible. Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart were only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings, or he was grieved that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I'll wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So that's what Peter is referring to. He's referring to that time in history. And again, I think he, when he's saying what, when he's explaining or, or talking about uh, Jesus, he's saying after he rose from the dead, he's talking about those sons of God. Some people see them as humans. Others see them as fallen angels. I have no idea how fallen angels have babies with human women. I don't know. But that's one of many issues with that passage. But to me, that's what's going on. And, and there's three verses that make me think that. One is, we already read it in 1 Peter 3.22 that talks about Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father with powers and principalities and angels in submission to him. So that sounds to me like, hey, he, he proclaimed victory over these fallen angels because now he's seated in heaven, a place of authority, and they're submitted to him. 2 Peter 2.4 and Jude 6 both talk about that same scene in Genesis 6. And they seem to say pretty clearly that it's fallen angels who've been imprisoned, again, in whatever that prison happens to look like. And so that's, that's again, you don't have to agree with me, but that's the, the reason why I would say those things. What's the point of any of that? I think it's to encourage Peter's congregations. You're suffering for doing good. Jesus suffered for doing good. Jesus was vindicated. You will be too. You, you can't see that part yet. But just like you see it with Jesus, he ascends, he proclaims victory over these fallen angels, you're gonna be vindicated as well at some point in the future. If part of the question is, what, what's the deal with the, like why these fallen angels and not others? If you think about the flood and what that, the global judgment, what, what's the level of wickedness that requires that type of judgment Every inclination of every heart is evil all the time. And those fallen angels are major contributors to that wickedness. And I think that's why you see them getting this kind of special punishment. What, what they did, whatever that, however that plays out with these women, whatever they did, it was so egregious that it led to the flood in part. Humans played their part as well. So again, I, I, I think there is something about them because they're mentioned three times in the New Testament. So again, that's, what I, that's how I would understand that. You take it for whatever it's worth. What does it mean to us? Like how does that impact the way you follow Jesus on Tuesday? Just this, again, when you're being squeezed, when you're living as an exile, when you're suffering for doing good, you're in good company because Jesus did. He was vindicated and you will be too. Remember our little corny illustration that we used? I had all this flour, which I don't have anymore, but this is 30 pounds of dough. This is a little bit of yeast. And we said from Matthew 13, 
33 and 34, it's just a little bit of yeast that works through this much dough. That's not much, this is a lot, this wins over time. And that's what Peter is trying to say to his congregation. There's not a lot of y'all. I get that. There's not, there's not many. But I don't want you to be depressed. I don't want you to be in despair. I don't want you to be distraught. The Holy Spirit working through you over time makes a difference. They can't see it. We can read a history book. And so we can see what happened. We know that within 300 years of Peter writing that, half of the Roman Empire, millions of people have become Christians. It, he's, he's alive. He's active. He works through his people. And Peter's trying to encourage them. And so then he slides into this next picture, which can be kind of confusing as well, about the ark and baptism. And I think the picture there is not just, hey, Jesus is an example. He suffered for doing good and was vindicated. You suffer for doing good. You will be vindicated. But also to say, here's how God saves you through difficulty. Rarely will he save you from. Normally, he saves you through. And Noah and his family are a picture of that. Can you imagine a generation, I don't know how many people were on the earth in Genesis 6, only eight were righteous. Just eight. Noah and his wife, his three kids, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth, and their, and their three wives. That's it. Just think in this room of 275 people, if only eight people were righteous. That's it. This is an entire generation. Eight are righteous. God cleanses the earth with a flood. He saves Noah and his family, not by zapping them to the Bahamas to say, y'all hang out on this island for a while but by putting them in an ark with a lot of animals. He preserves them through. He doesn't pull them from. And that's encouragement for Peter's church. Listen, this is gonna take some time. God is gonna protect you, preserve you, walk with you through this period of persecution. He's not necessarily gonna make it stop. That's not his MO. That's not the way he normally operates. But look back at what he did. Look back. There's more of you than there were of them. God preserved them through, and he'll do the same thing for you. And he, the picture he uses is the, the flood waters are a symbol of baptism. I'm like, what is that? What? God saves Noah through these flood waters, and he saves us, Peter says, through baptism. I thought we were saved by grace through faith. What? What is he talking about? Romans 6 talks about baptism, particularly that's one of the reasons that we immerse people. It helps capture that Romans 6. There are other ways of being baptized, but that's one of the ones that we use. It pictures this death and resurrection. What Peter is saying is just like the waters of the flood, that's death. It's the cleansing of the earth. So when you go down in the water, you're dying. it's a picture of you dying to yourself. And just like those waters receding, that's life. When you come out of the water, that's a picture of your new life in Jesus. Dying to your old self, being born again with him. That's a picture of baptism. And, and then he goes on to say, now listen, I want you to, it, it, this is not about washing your body. That's not what saves you. The act of baptism doesn't save. It's not necessary for salvation. The thief on the cross, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Jesus, today you'll be with me in paradise. The thief died on the cross. He wasn't baptized. They didn't take him down to baptize him and put him back up there. 
Baptism was not essential for salvation. It's not the act. It's not the ritual. Peter says it's the pledge of a clear conscience to God. That's why we practice, it's called believer's baptism. We dedicate babies. That's what we did this morning. We let parents say to God, here is this baby that you've given me and I'm committing, in this case, her back to you with the hope that in a few years, however many it takes, Mila will come to faith in Jesus and she will say to her parents, I wanna be baptized. Jesus has changed my life. And then we'll baptize her, whether she's eight or 10 or 12 or 20, whatever that is. The reason we do believer's baptism is that pledge of a clear conscience for us is a really important piece. That's why we do those testimony videos. We wanna hear what has Jesus done in your life? I was baptized as a baby. I'm not uh, trashing churches that do that. That's just not what we do. For us, again, that confession is really important. This is what God saved me from, and this is what he saved me for. This is how, why my life is different. This is what Jesus has done in me. It's the pledge of a clear conscience. A clear conscience, not because I'm sinless, but because I know I'm forgiven. I'm saved through this Pledge of a clear conscience by the resurrection of Jesus. His resurrection confirms and affirms that my sins have been forgiven. If he doesn't come out of the grave, then he was just a well-intentioned martyr. But coming out of the grave shows that he's a conquering king. That his death was sufficient to cover all of my sins. And yours as well. And so my question to you this morning is really simple. Have you been baptized? Just that simple. If you're a Christian, have you been baptized? Do you have to be baptized to be saved? No, of course not. But it is expected. The Great Commission. Jesus says, go into all the world. Make disciples of all nations and baptize them. Read the book of Acts. It's a story of the the spreading of the gospel during the first 40 years after Jesus' death. This is the pattern. People repent, people believe in Jesus, and then they're baptized. Have you been? If you're a Christian and you haven't been baptized, I want to strongly, strongly urge you to do so. Why would you not? There are reasons. People have reasons. Some people say, I just don't want to be the center of attention. I don't want to get up here. I don't want to be on a video. I don't want people looking at me. And I, I get that. I'm an introvert. I understand. I would just, may, maybe a different way of thinking. You're, you're giving a testimony. The spotlight's on Jesus. If that helps you overcome that sense of I don't want to be the center of attention. Can I just tell you that you're not? In the kindest way. What we're, what we're doing is we're celebrating what God has done in your life. You're, the, you're taking the light and you're pointing it to him and letting us see that. We don't know otherwise. We don't know, we all don't know one another. And this is an opportunity, if you've never done that, to give a public testimony. This, this is who I was and this is who I am. This is how Jesus has saved me. This is how he's made me new. You don't have to be super eloquent. Just honest. For some people, honestly, the whole thing feels silly especially the way we do it, we baptize you in a horse trough. Like, it's not elegant at all. And like, I'm gonna get all wet. 
My hair's going to get messed up. Not mine, y'all's. <laughs> Clothes are going to stick to me. I, and it, it can feel, it's like that's for kids. Jesus got baptized when he was 30. It's not, it's not just for kids. And again, I say this in love and humility. If that's the reason, and for you it just feels silly, I would say, just kind of get over that. That's not a good enough reason to not. It's not. That's not a good enough reason. There's, again, something. There, baptism is not just, it's not just a symbol. It's a sacrament. It's like communion. If it's done in faith, something powerful happens. If you take communion just ritually, you're just eating wet bread. Like, there's nothing to it. If you take it in faith, it's an opportunity for God to work grace into your heart. Baptism's the same. If, if you're just doing it, then you just get wet. There, there's nothing different. But if in faith, you're saying, Jesus, this is me identifying with you in your death and in your resurrection, then that opens you up to a grace, to, to grace of God that, that comes kind of exclusively through baptism. That's why it's an important thing, and that's why we would encourage you to do that, even at the risk of, again, it feeling maybe a little silly for you. For some people, they think, I kind of missed my shot. I'm 48. I became a Christian when I was 12. I should have done it earlier. I, you know, that ship has sailed. You're still alive. There's still an opportunity. There's no reason. That's, that, again, that's not a good enough reason. If you want to find out more, this was, we didn't plan this, but it does work out really well. Matt Nelson, who's our adult discipleship pastor, and Emily Massey, who's our children's director, they're doing a class uh, in about a month. It's one hour. Just, here's what we believe about baptism, and here's what it looks like practically. And if, you've, if you're an adult and you've never been baptized, excuse me, if you're a Christian and you've never been baptized, you need, we, we want you to come. You're not committing to anything. You'll just find out a little more. And we want everybody who wants to be baptized here, kids, students, and adults, to kind of just to go through this little deal so we're all on the same page. It's a practical next step. And again, I don't want to guilt you and I don't want to hound you. If you've been here for long, this is, I don't talk about this very much. But it is a, it's an important mile marker in your faith. And so I, would in, I don't want you to hear me saying you're somehow deficient if, if you're not baptized, I would just say, why would you not be? If it, it's, the, it's the norm in the New Testament and through the history of the church. And so I would encourage you, uh, again, if you've never been baptized and you're following Jesus, to do so. All right, I want to close with this. Uh, I was thinking about um, that idea in, Peter says this, he says, God waited patiently in the days of Noah. So there's a couple of ways of understanding that. In the passage that we read in Genesis 6, uh, we read that God says, I I'm not gonna contend with people forever. Their days are gonna be 120 years. So some people see that as God setting a life expectancy, that people will not live beyond 120 years. That's not how I see it. What I see it is as God saying, that's how long between when I said this and when I'm gonna send the flood. If you read through the Bible, particularly after the flood, people don't live that, Joseph lived to be 110, but that's not, nor that's not the lifespan, and so to me, it looks like God saying, that's how long between now and, and when I'm gonna send the flood. So maybe it took Noah 120 years to build. It's a big boat and he didn't have power tools, so it could have taken that long. But during that time, 2 Peter 2.5 says he's preaching. So he's preaching during that time. Again, he's building this massive ark and people may be thinking, what, what are you gonna do with that? There's no water around here. Like, what's, what's the plan? 
And it gives him an opportunity, he preaches, and according to Genesis, nobody repents. Only eight people get in the ark. Nobody else repents. But Peter says that's God being patient. He's giving people an opportunity to repent. He says the same thing in 2 Peter 3. He says, don't misunderstand God's slowness. He's being patient. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants all to come to a knowledge of the truth. And so God, when, when Jesus returns, game's up. There's no more opportunities. And so in a sense, we can say Jesus is delaying. He's giving people an opportunity to repent. And we're thankful for that because that means he gave me a chance. And he gave you a chance. But in that period of God's patience, creating space for people to repent, oftentimes his people suffer. That's, that's kind of the other side of that coin. He's not doing away with all of sin. He's not doing away with all of evil. He's not doing away with all the effects of the fall. And so we continue to live in a world that's fallen and with people who are sinful and with an enemy who's prowling around like a lion and we kind of get banged around in the midst of that. And that can create tension for us. And I, I want to give an opportunity, if that's you, if you're, if you're being squeezed today and don't compare that to anybody else in your own experience, if you would say that, yes, I feel like I'm being squeezed and you're growing weary in that. There's that part of you that's thinking, God, act now. Change it. Maybe you have a chronic illness. I, I don't know what it might be. We want to pray that God would give you grace because, again, the biblical pattern seems to much more be that he's going to walk with you through than he's going to pull you from that difficulty. And that changes everything if you know that. If you know, all right, he walks with me through the dark valley, well, then get walking. It changes things for you. Then he's going to pluck me out of the dark valley. It's a different mindset. And so again, if that's you, we want to, to pray with you. And again, recognizing the broader context is God's being patient. There, there's, it's his kindness. He's creating space for people to respond to him. So you, it, you're not suffering for nothing. But sometimes it's difficult to hold on to that when it just doesn't feel great. Maybe a hope's been deferred. Your heart's getting sick. We want to pray with you about that. So if you're ministry teams, you guys can come up. Bo, you can come on back up. Y'all pray with me for a second. Again, I don't want you comparing your whatever that would be, struggle, suffering, squeezing with somebody else. It's not that big a deal. If it's a big deal to you, it's a big deal. This is another one that just popped into my mind. I'm wondering if there's some of you as well who you feel like there's only eight. Like that you're, wherever, maybe it's something with your, um, your work or in your home and you feel very much like a minority, overwhelmingly small. We want to pray for you also. So God, I pray one, that you would continue to call us to the word, Holy Spirit, that you would lead us into the truth of the Bible, not just so that we fill our heads, but so that our hearts are formed and shaped and so that we get to know the Father better. So I pray for all of us. I pray particularly for those who just, they find it very difficult to read consistently. God, would you give them grace to do so? 
all the pressures off. I just pray that you would give them grace to do so. And again, that you would use this year of reading through the Bible to form and shape us individually and as a people. God, I pray for those who have not been baptized, the believers in the room, and I pray for courage to do that before you. God, I pray for those in the room who are not yet following you. I pray thinking about you, Jesus, as a sin offering, that that would resonate in their hearts and their minds. They would recognize the great love that was behind this incredible sacrifice, your desire to be reconciled to us. And God, we pray for those who are being squeezed today, whatever that looks like in their life, chronic pain, disappointment, grief, whatever it is. God, we pray that you would deliver them through. That they would know you, Jesus, walking with them through the valley of the shadow. And that they would not fear. Because you're with them. And your rod and your staff are comforting them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 